Hello and welcome to Behind the Buyouts, the deals podcast where we sit down with a leading private markets investor and drill down into their buyouts and venture capital deals. Thanks to everyone for joining us. I'm Steve Jelsey, senior private equity reporter for The Deal and the host of this podcast. Today we're joined by Craig J. Lewis, CEO of GigWage, a payroll services specialist for companies that use part-time workers in the gig economy. Craig, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So since our podcast focused on private equity and venture capital, I might want to start by saying that GigWage earlier this year raised $7.5 million in an oversubscribed Series A round of financing. So I guess that was, that was back in June, right? I think that's when we got the uh, Series A commitment. We closed the round actually in October. Oh, in October. Okay. So that's a little bit more recent. Okay. So we're going to talk about the company and some of the issues on your mind. Craig, let's start with your earlier years and then we'll get back to gig wage. We'll, we'll work our way back to the present. I was interested to see that you wrote a book, The Sport of Sales, How to Become a Superstar Sales Pro, and that was published in 2012. Why don't you touch on why you wrote that book and any highlights from earlier in your career? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I played professional basketball after playing Division One collegiate basketball and it was a big part of my life. And I tried my hand in entrepreneurship early on. Let's just say I have uh, the scar tissue to prove it. And from there, I ended up getting into sales. And I got really passionate and involved in the sales world, right? I just really loved everything about it. And what I realized was the thing that I loved about it were the similarities to sports, the competitiveness, the numbers-driven, kind of the metric result-oriented type thing, the need for a team to get a deal done. And As I was thinking about this and kind of getting deeper and deeper into sales, those parallels just constantly came up and it struck me and I just had this idea. And I remember I sat down at my kitchen table with an actual pencil and paper and began writing. And it turned into a book that ultimately became The Sport of Sales, where we walk people through kind of sales 101, the pure basics of how you do sales, but we compare them to every step of the way to like sports, right? And so when you're interviewing for a sales job, it's like going to basketball trials, right? And so we kind of make those parallels and it was a cool project for me. Okay, great, great. So how did you get the idea for GigWage? And you do a lot of reading and it was, uh, I guess you read an article that inspired you to, to do something for the gig economy. Yeah, so I've been in sales for quite a while and I was selling payroll and payment services. That's really where I kind of cut my teeth. And so I've seen every type of payroll company you could possibly imagine. I've seen every type of niche you could possibly imagine. And when I read this article from McKinsey about the global independent workforce, aka the gig economy, I realized I hadn't seen anyone trying to be the payroll company for the gig economy. And that was around 2016. And that really sparked the idea of, hey, we could help the businesses that are paying these individuals, unlike where most people were focused on helping the individuals. So you worked for a payroll company, a pretty big payroll company. Was it ADP or am I wrong on that? Yeah, little, little small company called ADP. Yeah, <laughs> so you were, in sale, you were in sales for them. Yeah. And uh, I, but you, you always kind of had this entrepreneurial you know, interest in, in, in your career, I guess, right? Yeah, man, I, I, I actually say, you know, I grew up uh, you know, with more of a hustle mentality. I probably didn't know what uh, entrepreneurship was. And then I read this stat one time that, you know, some extremely high number of Fortune 500 CEOs have a sales background. And like I said, I had a a failed hand at entrepreneurship before becoming a sales rep. So I knew I'd probably end up getting back to it. And when I finally built up enough courage, aka experience, aka courage, uh, I jumped back out here again. And we've been going headstrong ever since. Well, what was the company you tried to start? 
Well, no, I started a company. <laughs> Make no oh, mistake about it. It just failed. Okay, well, so, that happens. So, yeah, after I, after I uh, finished playing ball in Europe, I started a sports marketing company and a sports events company. I was running both simultaneously. They kind of worked hand in hand. And it was called Super Shootout Inc. We were doing basically like if you took NBA All-Star Weekend or, you know, the Home Run Derby for Weekend Warriors. And, you know, we had like prizes and we partnered with Microsoft and we were giving out Xboxes and cash and we do three point competitions and partner with Lifetime Fitness and all this stuff. And it was actually going well. We had took out a small business loan from a local bank in Arkansas, of all places. We were in Phoenix. But uh, long story short, my business partner ended up contracting cancer and passing away like unexpectedly. Sorry. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't have key man life insurance and so many life lessons and business lessons I've learned from that moment. But when he passed away, I kind of didn't want to do the entrepreneurial thing. I didn't want to do the sports thing. And that's what really led me down the, the sales and technology and payment space. But yeah, we were trying to do some sports marketing and uh, I ended up dissolving that company and learning a lot. Well, that's great. So now you got GigWage up and running. How is that kind of, you know, we, you know, the deal does some events in Dallas. There's a really good middle market environment there for companies. So how did you find you starting up a company in Dallas? Was it, did you find a lot of good networking opportunities and that kind of stuff in, in sure. Dallas? Yeah. So I'm from here. So that's the real reason. But the, the business reason is there's a lot of great business cases to start a company here. But what I, I'll tell you, the, one of the things I noticed when I moved back in 2013 I used to travel about 220 days a year on the road doing deals, right? I was selling enterprise software, speaking, doing my thing. When I moved to Dallas, I quickly realized I didn't have to travel that much. There was enough business and deal flow and transactions happening right here. And so Dallas has been phenomenal. It's such a great entrepreneurial spirited ecosystem. There's so much money. There's a lot of old money that over the last five to 10 years has been transitioning into technology. So Dallas has just been phenomenal for me. We raised the vast majority of our early capital, you know, right here in the DFW Metroplex. Okay, so you got the company up and running it really, yeah, just I've written about it a little bit. You might want to just add to what I'm saying in your own words. But from what I understand, it for companies that have pay, a gig economy workers or part-time workers, it's a payroll services, easy use payroll services provider basically. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, you got your Series A round going. Why don't you talk about that? You got more demand than expected. Yeah, it's really interesting. So it's been a grind to get to this point. I think with yeah. every advantage that Dallas brings, it also has some disadvantages if you're building a venture capital-backed company. To your point, it's very middle market, very private equity. So understanding the dynamics behind early stage venture capital, there was some education that had to happen. So it took us a while. But once we really got rolling and the market started to understand what we were doing, that the round came together really nicely. And actually, none of our Series A came from DFW. All of our early money did. But what Dallas taught me that really helped this round is corporate venture. And Dallas has tried his hand at startups and venture capital unsuccessfully, if you will. But we have great corporations that are looking to innovate. And I've seen that over the years play out. And I really think it should be the identity of Dallas as corporate venture. But I took that thesis. And since I couldn't really get it done in Dallas, just went out and got it done, and which is why Green Dot Corporation ended up leading our round. 
Okay, so just to just to kind of clarify to listeners here, corporate venture capital is different from standalone venture capital. Their corporate venture capital is usually within a larger company. A lot of big companies have venture capital arms to try to get them invested in companies that are growing more quickly, like Intel has one. So this is a case where you work with Green Dot and tell us about Green Dot. And, and a lot of times people don't think that corporate venture capital is very good. So it's really interesting to hear that you're thinking of Dallas as a corporate venture capital. I mean, there's a lot of private equity firms in Dallas, but I guess there aren't a lot of big venture capital firms in Dallas. There are no big venture capital <laughs> firms in Dallas. Oh, okay. be really clear. Like <laughs> once you get to Series A, you have no options. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but corporate venture is something I'm quite contrarian on in that yeah, a lot of people do have a negative connotation to it. Um, yeah. There's two types, right? There's we have a venture arm where we've allocated and earmarked $500 million to invest in startups and we're focused on ROI. There's also groups that say, hey, we're going to invest directly off our balance sheet and we want to be strategic about opportunities. Um, and so once you start to understand that, you can kind of weigh it out. Green Dot had never made a venture capital investment before. They had been primarily M&A. They'd done a lot of M&A activity, right? And they ended up investing off of their balance sheet to lead the round. Uh, Dan Henry, the CEO, and I had a lot of conviction around the gig economy and how payments could impact it. And so once we kind of got together and started looking at the synergy, it just made sense. Yeah, I mean, Green Dot makes payment pay cards or um, a, a smart cards or a debit, debit cards or something? Yep, they're a card company. But they're all, what's unique about them is they're actually a bank. And so Green Dot Corporation owns Green Dot Bank. It's a holding company for the bank. And so they're the full banking infrastructure all the way up to debit cards and prepaid cards. And so you reached out to the company CEO, right? You said uh, yeah. uh, CEO's last name is Henry. So how did that go? Yeah, I saw an article. You will hear this trend in my story. I read an article and then I did a thing. <laughs> so That's good I, keep I, reading. I'll keep reading, everybody. Just keep hey, reading. Hey, reading is paramount. It's <laughs> fundamental, right? So, yeah, I had um, read this article that they had just hired this new CEO. Uh, Green Dot had just hired. They had uh, some private equity guys come in, bought up a large stake, and they wanted to replace the CEO with their guy. Dan was their guy. I read that article and I thought, I knew Dan's background from NetSpend in Austin, a company that he uh, sold for $1.4 billion. And that Texas connection was one thing. And then we had been running into Green Dot in the market. And we saw some product opportunities to innovate. And so I just reached out to him and said, hey, congratulations on the new job. I've got some ideas. Let's talk. And kudos to him, a, a new CEO in the middle of a pandemic, getting this startup technology guy reaching out. He answered the call and we've been able to do some business together because of it. That's really good. So you've been vocal on social issues such as uh, Black Lives Matter. Currently, less than 1% of black company founders get venture capital funding. I'm going re- to repeat that. Currently, less than 1% of black company founders get venture capital funding. Craig, how will this change? This seems like a missed opportunity for institutional investors. Would you agree with this and why? Yeah, the financial arbitrage and the ROI that's being left on the table because people are not doing this is, is baffling to me. But yeah, less than 1% of venture capital goes to African-American founders. This is a huge problem because the greatest wealth creation we've seen since 1930, the East Texas oil boom, is technology. If you look at the, you know, the S&P 500, you look at the top five companies in the world, they're all venture-backed and technology companies. The thing about it is, where do you find alpha? right? You find it in these unique, unexpected places, right? Uh, You can only invest in so many Stanford dropouts and MIT dropouts. Who's out here really seeing the the unique opportunities? 
black people have a perspective that is just underserved, uh, under under resourced and underestimated. And so there's a huge opportunity for that. And I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take that on. And I'm, I was really excited about this round, especially with a lot of the consciousness and awareness uh, in 2020. Right. I really wanted to get this round done, get this story out there um, and, and show the excellence and the opportunity, the business opportunity that exists with inv- investing in black uh, founders specifically. So it sounds like you found a fairly receptive audience among institutional investor capital investors. What's your take on the move by institutional investors towards environmental and social governance issues or ESG issues this year? Uh, diversity has played a big part of that. Uh, do you think uh, the industry is going in the right direction or has a lot further to go? Or what's your reaction to the efforts this year? Yeah, the data shows that this stuff just makes sense. It's good business, right? Like being socially aware, socially engaged, socially active, it makes good business sense. And I think people are starting to more so realize that whatever awakening happened and sparked it, that's a different conversation. But I think people are really just starting to understand the, the, the capitalistic opportunity in it, right? Whether that's good or bad, people have opinions about both. But at the end of the day, this is business. So I think it is a good move in the right direction to do well and do good. I think you're just seeing more and more data to support this. It almost reminds me of like when I was covering the green energy movement, starting like it, was, it got really uh, intense about 10 years ago or yeah. 2000, pre-2008. They did studies saying that companies that had better green policies or greener activities were actually more profitable as well. So it, it, it yeah. reminds me a little bit of that. You know, there's, there's virtue, you know, virtuous behavior produces good results. Like on the business Totally. Yeah. I think diversity is, and that's, diversity is one of the biggest ones, right? Whether you're talking to race, gender, geography, you want diverse minds at the table, especially when every company is global now because of technology, you need a global perspective, right? And you need people to see things in different ways from different angles to really innovate and have true impact on the market. And so, yeah, it's just good business. So are there any shout outs that you'd like to mention in terms of who's doing it right in the corporate venture community or maybe among Fortune 500 companies, perhaps, you know, like in terms of diversity issues, any, anybody that seems to be yeah, getting it right? I, or- I'll say everybody's got a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's got a long way to go. I mean, you know, you're seeing a lot of these hires around chief diversity officers at the corporate level. And I think that's an interesting play. I don't know that it's a position you can hire. I think it's going to be really hard for big companies to backtrack and, and embed this into their culture. I think it's incumbent upon companies like GigWage to do this thing from the onset so that it's foundational in what you're doing. But I do think the dollars have to be invested and there has to be thought around this. So yeah, I think it's new high growth companies that will really start to set the tone. You know, anything kind of pre-series C that, you know, those companies that will grow and get big with that at the, uh, at the foundation and core of who they are. Okay. So, I mean, I'm thinking of some uh, African-American billionaires that are out there. Uh, Dr. Dre uh, became a billionaire when he sold Beats to Apple. Jay-Z's got to be a billionaire by now. There's a lot of uh, NBA and, and NFL players that might be around that area as well. What's, what's going to happen? And also, I mentioned, I thought about Ken Chinote from CEO of American Express. Any, I don't know if he's a billionaire, but he's probably close. Wealthy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, any, you know, who, who, who's the new generation of uh, African-American billionaires? What are they going to be looking like? What's the next wave coming, you think? Yeah, I think you definitely are going to see a continued push from the entertainment and athletic space because there's a lot of cash early and a lot of access to opportunity. But no, I think you're starting to see more and more of these early stage technology founders where people are bringing that same 
entertainment sports swagger to technology companies. And I think, you know, again, I think technology is the greatest opportunity for wealth creation there. And so, you know, as I look to doing some angel investing, et cetera, I'm seeing really, really talented, special people at the earlier stages with grand ambition, right? But no, Jay-Z, Dr. Dre, these guys have all kind of set the tone that business is cool, right? And that's a good thing. Yeah. Kenneth Chenault is a great example. I actually had some conversations about, man, trying to get that guy on my board. That would be phenomenal. Sure. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of uh, Robert Smith. Uh, that's oh, my, yeah. from Vista, I was going to mention yeah. him. He's, he's considered the wealthiest African-American man. Uh, yeah, it's, I think he's one and Kanye West is actually two, which is really- Oh, Kanye. Right? Okay, Kanye no, West. Yeah, yeah, no, Robert's, Robert's one at like $6.5 billion. Kanye is about five, $5.5 uh, which I think that that dynamic is really interesting, right? For for black wealth, if you look at a guy that kind of went through the Goldman investment banker path, and then yeah. you got Kanye West, right? Like you've just got this dynamic. But what does it show you? These people have unique perspectives, and I think they just can't be ignored too much longer. Getting back to gig wage, how does the company differ from payroll specialists such as ADP? And do you have any other updates on the company you'd like to mention in terms of hiring or capital raising plans or possible M&A deals for the company? And also, I didn't know you were an angel investor, so now you're doing angel investing too. Sure. Yeah. So the way GigWage is different is it's really about focus. I like to talk about when Dropbox went to Apple and they went to Google and all those companies said, oh, you're just a feature. Uh, And Dropbox was able to with a mercenary-like approach, focus on cloud storage and build a $10 billion company. GigWage is super focused on helping companies pay very specifically independent contractors and freelancers. And because of this, we've built amazing innovation around what we've done. So where ADP is a payroll company and they help a company move money out to a person, GigWage does a lot more than that. We are the financial infrastructure for the gig economy to solve the problem of getting money to people fast. So we, uh, we deal in accounts receivable, accounts payable, banking, transfers. This is why we're doing a debit card and all these different things. All of the money movement that happens in the ecosystem, we've really churned it so that people get paid fast and flexibly. So we're much more than just accounts payable or payroll. We're essentially becoming the bank of the gig economy, which is just drastically different. The last part about that is we're also B2B2C. So we not only service the businesses that pay the workers, but because the workers are not a part of those companies, we also service them as well. So they take us with them from job to job and task to task. Uh, so, so that's why we're different. And just to kind of give us an idea of the gig economy, I mean, it gets bigger all the time. I guess that's a question, you know, you could also look at some of these bigger companies that have been servicing the gig economy, but who are these folks that are doing this? They're, they're just kind of working, maybe they're, they're getting, you know, insurance from Obamacare or something, and, and, yeah. and they're, they're working a series of freelance jobs. And this is the economy of the, the U.S. This is where it's going. So who is it, right? It's everyone. You're talking about nearly 75 million people that made $2 trillion last year. Right. So this is everything from low to middle income to doctors and nurses and therapists. We see everything. across. We pay all kind of people to do all kind of things. You know, maybe this Christmas we'll be paying some Santa Claus and some elves actors at at a at a, uh, at, a, at, a at a mall if they're open. But, yeah, this is all kind of people. So that's a beautiful, beautiful part of the gig economy. It's flexible and it's on demand. So whether you are doing it full time as a delivery driver, if you need to make ends meet in addition to working a full time job, whatever you need, the gig economy is there for you. You can push a button and do work. So every class of people work in the gig economy in some way. The big focus, though, is on low to middle income earners and how do you create that social safety net around them? 
And that's really where GigWage butters its bread. Okay. So looking ahead, are you thinking about taking the company public one day or maybe selling it? Uh, do you have a preference for an IPO or a sale? Yes. Yeah, a lot of fun stuff happening out there, right? I'm looking at this SPAC market and I'm like, oh, we might could get there quicker than, quicker than you think. Yeah. Uh, so my goal has always been to build something really big and really impactful. And I think if we do that, we'll have options. We're definitely an attractive asset to a lot of people. We've had people kick the tires from an M&A perspective on, in regards to buying us. I want to get big. I want to help a lot of people. IPO is definitely something that's on the table. But we'll make that decision based on whatever kind of fiduciary responsibility we have at the time of those transactions. But also, I would like to take around and, and look at some assets that might be interesting to us as we continue to grow. I think there's some opportunity to consolidate. There's some ancillary type services we could provide that it might make more sense to buy versus build. And so we're looking at all of that right now. It's an exciting time. And the Series B, is that coming soon or any, any color on, on your, your, your capital raising or finance? Yeah, I'm fighting the Series B investors off with a stick right now, to be honest with you. So the Series A, we- Come uh, on, come on, come on. <laughs> I, literally, I'm not joking. I, I, have a, I have a copy and pasted email that I'm sending. I have to send it multiple times a day. Hey, heads down, executing for the next quarter. Happy to connect after that. Uh, it's a very attractive opportunity. There's actually some, unfortunately, I can't announce it just yet, but the Series A, there's some additional information to that. It, it actually got extended. So the amount we raised, there's going to be more. And the, the market signal that this particular investor is going to bring to the table is just going to amplify it. But I think the Series B will be raised in the next three to nine months, honestly, based off of the energy we're getting right now. Okay, that's good to know. Good to know. Social issues do seem to be a key way for companies to reach younger customers and recruit a talented workforce. Craig, where do you see this trend going? We've noticed a lot more attention on companies and policies by companies that support ESG principles both internally and with their products and investments. Carlisle Group, for example, announced an investment in a company that makes clothes for more sustainable material called Everyman Jack as an example. So where do you think this is all heading? It's interesting. The Carlisle Group is an LP and one of our investors, actually, one of their funds. Yeah, I think CEOs will make a decision on where they, what side of the table they want to sit in on this. Um, some people are saying, hey, we don't, we don't deal with social issues. We're here to focus on company mission. We sit on the other side of the table where I'm not afraid of social issues. I think they should be tackled. I think business is the best place for you to impact change. Listen, you can be successful a lot of different ways. I think for us, we'll be on the side of history that's favorable for us by going that route. And I think a lot of companies will start to see that. We just hired our first Gen Z employee. And, and hey, I'm an old millennial, so I barely made the cut. Uh, but millennials, Gen Z, as they enter the workforce, these things are important to them at scale. So if you want to hire the best talent, this thing is going to become important from a recruiting perspective. So uh, I, I think the companies that go that route will do well. And I forgot to ask you, uh, in terms of the uh, gig wage, what's your number of employees and do you have a diversity focus uh, at the company as well? Yeah, so we currently sit at 12. We'll be at 30 by the end of next year. We're very capital efficient, right? I, I originally had this thought that we could build a billion dollar company with less than 100 people. I may be reneging on that a little bit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we actually, I just hired a new chief strategy officer and diversity has been just very organic for us because I'm at the head of it and it's important to me. Uh, but we are actually putting a, a DNI plan together and building it into the culture, the onboarding, the recruiting process. And so a very specific plan around that. I'm actually going to make sure that diversity, not just diversity and inclusion, but culture is represented in our boardroom. I think it's super important. 
Okay, Craig J. Lewis, CEO of GigWage, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is Steve Jelsey, and this has been Behind the Buyouts. 